0: Section 9 of The Empresses of Rome. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. The Empresses of Rome by Joseph McCabe. Chapter 6 Nero's Wives. Part 2. It was about this time that the great fire occurred which turned the laughter of Nero's subjects into resentment. For six days and seven nights the flames ate their way through the blocks of tall tenements divided only by narrow streets in the parching heat of July. Nero was in the provinces at the time and from the conflicting accounts it is impossible to pass an opinion on the rumour that he had ordered the burning of Rome. Dio gives us the familiar picture of Nero twanging his zither and chanting the fall of Troy from the summit of a high tower on the hill. Others declare, however, that he at once ordered the most expedient methods for checking the conflagration, but it was angrily whispered among the camps of the homeless that men had been seen throwing torches upon their houses, and that they were acting under orders from the palace." Nor were the citizens appeased when he threw the blame on the obscure and unpopular devotees who went by the name of Christians, and afforded them the brutal spectacle of driving round the circus to the light of burning men and women whose living bodies had been wrapped in tow and soaked in wax and tar. Few believed in their guilt. Even Seneca at length broke his casuistic or diplomatic reserve and retired in disgust from Rome. Nero went down in great dejection to Bay, leaving orders that, in the restoration of the city, a new palace should be built for him that should transcend anything within the memory of Rome or of history. This golden house, which Nero raised round the more modest palaces of his predecessors, gave a fresh grievance to discontent. The great and unselfish Octavian had been satisfied with a small patrician mansion. Tiberius had built a palace. Caligula had enlarged it. Nero flung out its wings over a vast space. It seemed that emperors squandered the money of the state in proportion to their uselessness. The colossal edifice and its wonderful park stretched from the Palatine to the Esquiline across the intervening valley and was surrounded by a triple colonnade in marble, Citizens huddled in the crowded blocks of the Sabura and the Velabrum, while Nero created a miniature world within his marble girdle. There was a great lake filled with salt water from Ostia, with a small town on its shore. There were vineyards, cornfields, groves in which wild beasts ran loose, fountains and gardens. The palace itself was of such proportions that a statue of Nero, 120 feet high, could be conveniently lodged in its porch. Some of the rooms were plated with gold and adorned with precious stones. The supper room had a ceiling of ivory, with openings through which flowers and costly perfumes might be shed upon the guests. The Egyptian roses, whose beauty withered in one banquet in this chamber, had a value of £35,000 in our coinage. There now dawned on Rome some consciousness of the price that the empire was paying for the stupendous folly it had so long applauded. While the treasury was being exhausted in entertainments that all could enjoy, the murmuring was confined to the sober few. From the moment when this colossal symbol of Nero's selfishness towered above the city, the murmurs became audible and were multiplied. Nero, alarmed at the sullen looks and the vague reports of plots, went down angrily to the coast. Then a slave brought a definite accusation of conspiracy against his master, and the stream of blood began to flow. It is an unhappy fact, and one that confirms the darker view of Poppaea's character, that almost the only detail related of her in the Chronicles, after the death of her child, is that she was one of the Council of Three, who directed this horrible series of executions. Nero would not trust the ordinary procedure of Roman justice. With Poppea and Tigellinus as associate judges, he himself examined or endorsed every charge that cupidity or malignity brought to the palace. Rome was reddened for weeks with torture, murder and suicide. Students of the decay of Rome have perhaps not sufficiently appreciated the effect of this periodic effusion of the best blood in the city. In the earlier wars, both civil and foreign, the good and the base alike had fallen. In these inquisitions for conspiracy, which fill Rome with mourning time after time, from the death of Octavian to the accession of Trajan, it is chiefly the men and women of honour who suffer. They constitute a natural selection of the cowardly and the sycophantic, The city teemed with funerals, in the terse phrase of Tacitus, and the gatherings of its citizens were black with mourning. Large numbers of officers and patricians were executed or driven to suicide, and their children were scourged or banished to the provinces. Seneca paid the penalty of his tardy outspokenness, and his admirable end sustains our trust that his character may, in spite of our unconquerable hesitations, have not been inconsistent with his high creed. He and his wife, who nobly asked permission to quit the world with him, had their veins opened, and Seneca passed into the silence with quiet dignity. His wife was, to her regret, recalled to life by the soldiers. Poppea did not live to share the punishment which these crimes brought upon Nero. Her end came more swiftly and in more terrible form, The carnage had been interrupted by a fresh burst of rejoicing. A man declared to Nero that he knew where the fabulous treasures of the Carthaginian queen Dido, which Virgil had so recently sung in the Aeneid, were buried. A fleet was sent to Africa to recover them, and from his sombre brooding Nero passed into a new fit of prodigal entertaining. He emptied the last depths of his treasury in spectacles and donations. When the fleet returned at length without a single cup or coin, his anger stormed with ungovernable fury, and one day, when Poppaea expostulated with him, he kicked her in the abdomen. The outrage proved fatal as she was pregnant, and Nero's light mind turned from rage to the most extravagant lamentation. Her body was not burned, as was usual at Rome, but embalmed and vast quantities of rare perfumes were sacrificed on the funeral pile. This peculiarity of her funeral has been thought to strengthen the interesting legend of her conversion to Christianity. It was more probably due to Nero's frenzied desire to give a unique burial to so unique a goddess, as the Senate declared her to be. It is unthinkable that Nero should make such a concession to Christian ideas even if she had shared them in any measure, and her life does not dispose us to claim that honour for her. The legend has no foundation in history, and the early church may easily be relieved of the stain of having counted Poppea among its adherents. It is not our place to pursue the insanity of the emperor through all the forms it assumed after the death of Poppea, but he took a third wife, whom Mr Baring Gould seems to have overlooked, and we must briefly relate the story of her experience. Immediately after the death of Poppea, Nero took a consort whom the pen almost shrinks from describing. It seemed to him that he discovered a resemblance to his beloved Poppea in one of his freedmen, Sporus. The man was entrusted to the surgeons for a loathsome operation and then solemnly married to the emperor. Dressed in the empress's robes and jewels, he travelled in Nero's litter and was publicly kissed and caressed by him. This abominable comedy soon lost its interest and Nero decided to marry Octavia's sister, Antonia. Recollecting the recent fate of her sister, she boldly refused and she was put to death on a charge of aspiring to the throne. Nero then chose Statilia Messalina, the granddaughter of a distinguished and wealthy senator, who had been driven to take his own life under Agrippina. The last part of the Annals of Tacitus, which would cover this date, is missing, and if we are to believe the less reputable chroniclers, Messalina had already been familiar with Nero and had married, as her third husband, one of his close companions in debauch, Atticus Vestinus. She is described as beautiful, witty, wealthy and lax but the description is applied to so large a proportion of the ladies of the time that it gives little aid to the imagination. From some later details, we shall conclude that she had more culture and probably more character than most of the courtly ladies of Nero's time. One is disposed to think that she married Nero on the maxim, literally interpreted, that it is better to be married than burned. Her husband was one night entertaining his friends, when soldiers from the palace entered the room. They took him to his bath, opened his veins, and let him bleed to death, and Statilia Messalina became the tenth empress of Rome. There is every reason to believe that she shrank with prudence from the executions and entertainments, which again proceeded with ghastly alternation. Her five predecessors had been murdered. The preceding lady of Nero's choice had been murdered, and she herself had been divorced by murder. Messalina seems to have concentrated her resources upon remaining alive until a last and most just murder should release her from her odious connection. Men were wearying even of Nero's ridiculous performances and were stung by his cruelty. He put soldiers amongst his audience to note the absent and detect the scoffer so that his festivals became an affliction. Men were driven to the subterfuge of shamming death and being borne out by their slaves to avoid the exacting part of admiring spectators. Nero swore that he would exterminate the whole senatorial order. It is the most honourable mention we find of them in the Chronicles for many decades. To their relief, he now announced that he would proceed with his Greek tour. The silver-shod mules and the gay regiment of the Augustans were set in motion Nero's hair was permitted to attain an artistic length and negligence and the comedy was transferred for a time to the land of Aristophanes. How he won every prize for which he competed, how he plundered the temples and the mansions of the Greek, how his retinue passed like a flight of locusts over the helpless province must be read elsewhere. After some 18 months he was recalled to Italy by grave tidings. It has been impossible to refrain from speaking in accents of disdain of the way in which Rome had silently witnessed or joyously acclaimed the successive follies of Nero, but, as I have previously noticed, it was in a peculiarly difficult situation. The Praetorian Guards were an army of 20,000 disciplined soldiers and were paid for personal service to the ruling house and blind to any other interest than their own they kept an irresistible check upon every impulse to rebel. That there were such impulses, and probably some attempt to seduce the guards, the unfailing stream of blood at Rome justifies us in believing. The hope of the empire was in the more sober and more industrious provinces, and it was here that the revolt began. The leader of the troops in Gaul, Vindex, entered into correspondence with the troops in Spain, The Spanish commander Servius Salpicius Galba was a Roman of illustrious family, venerable age and stern character. Nero had heard that the purple had been offered to Galba and that the legions of Gaul and Spain were preparing to advance on Italy. On his return to Italy, however, Nero hears that the German legions are advancing against those of Gaul and that Galba is hesitating. He gaily resumes his follies, and is deaf to political exhortations. At last, a manifesto is put into his hands, in which Vindex refers to him as a miserable player, and the insult to his art cuts deeply. He writes to the Senate to demand redress, and sets out for Rome. Nothing in the whole of his extraordinary career is so tragicomic as this penultimate scene. Clothed in a mantle of purple, embroidered with gold stars, Wearing the Olympian chaplet on his head, he enters Rome as the god of art. Servants bear before him the 1,800 crowns or chaplets he has won in Greece. The 5,000 Augustans march behind his chariot. A sacrifice is made to Apollo, and the games resume their familiar course. Then Nero is told that, although Vindex has committed suicide, the German and other legions have joined Galba and the fire of revolt is spreading round the empire. He announces that he will advance on Gaul. The ladies of his harem, who form a fair regiment, have their hair cut short and with toy shields and other theatrical properties masquerade as Amazons. The last scene is brief and inevitable. Galba is marching on Rome. The Praetorian guards have been won for him. The nobles find it safe to desert Nero. The nerveless brute whimpers and weeps in his helplessness. He will fly to Alexandria and earn his living as a musician. The great golden house is silent and deserted. Rome is openly deriding him. His servants have fled. One has even stolen the box in which he kept poison for such an emergency. The faithful Actae, Sporus, and a very few of those who fed on his folly remain with him. Messalina has deserted him, and will appear later as the friend of one of his successors. In the great silent house, with its walls of gold and its ceilings of ivory, he puts off the purple robes and clothes himself in an old shirt and a ragged cloak. On a miserable horse he rides with them across the vast deserted park, and makes for the house of one of his dependents, a few miles from Rome. There they admit him by a hole they have made in the wall, give him black bread and water and cover him with a blanket. They discuss the situation and conclude by offering him a dagger. He shrinks like Julia, like Messalina, from the horrible darkness and vainly strains his eyes for a ray of hope. At last they hear the clatter of cavalry on the road, and Nero feebly points the dagger at his breast for a servant to drive home. And when the customary cremation is over, there are none but Actae and a faithful old nurse to lay the degraded ashes in the tomb. So the tenth empress of Rome laid down her brief dignity. Statilia Messalina had had little reason to follow Nero in his humiliation. Whether the charge of laxity that is brought against her be true or no, she was a woman of exceptional intelligence and culture, and had probably only married Nero out of fear. We meet her again at a later stage in the Chronicles. After Galba's short hour of supremacy, we shall find an equally short reign of Salvius Otho, the man who once pillaged taverns with Nero in the Sabura. Provincial government had sobered him, and he wrote affectionate letters to Messalina. He would no doubt have made her empress once more if he had lived, but the throne was wrested from him, and Messalina retired to the calmer world of letters and rhetoric. Our last glimpse of her discovers her delivering orations of great eloquence and learning among the intellectual ladies of Rome. End of section 9